RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. And with me today is young Michael. Hello, Dustinian. <laughs> Full names today. We're going formal on RPGLL. Indeed. So today, we're talking about our second and last um, World of Dungeons um, session. And we're, we called that episode Keltus because you beat a bad guy named Keltus. Keltus. <laughs> so short version is we played the game we talked about some episodes back where it was basically frozen. Um, and then we returned to the village of Dora to deal with that Keltus plot hook that we had left dangling. Let's start off with the numeric ratings. So I'm going to rate this a 5.5, and I've, I've never done a 0.5 before. And it's very important that I explain why. It's the exact center point between 1 and 10. To me, uh, this was just fun enough that it was better than not playing, but it left an awful lot to be desired. I think you guys had more fun than I did. Yeah. I, I walked out of the session, and I was like, man, that was it was fun. I had fun. It's better than not playing, but it could have been so much more. Mike, your numbers and your thoughts. So I'm trying to remember what I rated the last game, and I think I rated that one an 8. So I'm probably going to rate this one as a 6. I had fun. I definitely did not have as much fun the first session, but I'm having trouble thinking of why I didn't have as much fun, right? So just kind of going down my my quick score checklist, I, I was engaged as a character with my character, I was engaged as a character with other players at the table, which is like the first time this has ever happened. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. Um, so those were both both well in its favor. I, I think probably why I would rate this a little, a little lower, as I'm going to guess the same reason you did, is that maybe the the hook and the, the cast of characters just simply wasn't as engaging the first time around. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, let's dig into it. So running the session from a minute-by-minute standpoint, right out of the gate, the first thing I asked you guys to do was to draw your characters. And, boy, we invested some time in that, some some real time spent um, basically taking an index card, doing some pencils, and doing Sharpies over it. Mike, we took, what, maybe 10, 15 minutes on this? That sounds about right. Did it add anything? <laughs> Absolutely not. I am so terrible at drawing. Um, and, and it's kind of funny. Nathan was also like, I am so terrible at drawing, but his guy looks so much better than mine. Um, even Chris's quick scribble since he showed up late looks better than my guy. Um, so that really didn't add anything for me. I, I kind of already had a vision of what my guy looked like. And I simply just proved that I could not capture that, that vision I had in my head. Is it better just to leave it in everyone's head and never show pictures or should we have gone to, you know, pulled up the Googles and done some Google image searching to find what was in our head? Like, it, would visuals have helped at all to say, this is what my guy looks like? I think that only happens when you're kind of playing something more modern, right? So I did that for ETU because I had a specific picture of a person in my head and I could do a quick Google search and I found a million non-generic, you know, 
descriptive pictures of real people that I could use for, for Tad, right? Um, the problem I would run into this is I would run into all sorts of, you know, generic mid-level fantasy, high-level fantasy that I think would influence my character. So, so I think, I think the Google search kind of influences what you're going for. I, I think the real answer is, is that if you have an image of your character of, in your head and you have that artistic ability to express that, you know, in, in a drawing style, then go for it. Um, otherwise I'm not sure if it really adds that much unless you're just really having trouble expressing to your player base, what your character looks like, if that makes a difference in the game. And what I was going for, I was, so I went and specifically bought these like wedding place card settings, um, this place card holder. And the idea was we'd put one of these in front of each of the players and you put the picture of your character in it. So it serves as like a name card. Where when I'm looking at you, Mike, I can glance down and like a name card on the first day of work, I can see your character. That was the notion. And and to your point, I don't think it, you know, we did it, we drew them, we put them in the, in the place card holders, and then we just never looked at them again. Did that benefit you as a GM any? It really didn't. Um, I think, okay, how about a different question? Was the picture of Celtus worthwhile? I, I couldn't even really see it from where I was sitting, so no. Uh, yeah, so the idea was if, if we're foregoing the minis, having some sort of visual to help you see. Um, but I, I think theater of the mind works best when it's like a book. You don't, you don't envision, you know, Bella from Twilight in the exact same way that I do, but that's okay. We have our unique Bellas. We both read Twilight. And we're both good with having our singular vision of what Bella and Edward and Jasper and Alice look like. Would you agree with that? Disclaimer, I did not read Twilight. (laughs) I had to mess with you. (laughs) I know. Um, I I, I would agree with that, though, right? I I think when when you're in that that mental space, that, that visualization of the character really only benefits you and... I'm not even sure in an RPG setting if there really is too much of a need to express that to your other players, right? Because your other players get their own mental image of the character in their head. And now as I say that, the one time I think it could come in handy is if there is confusion over over what someone's character looks like because they're not doing a good job of putting a mental image into someone else's head. So now I'm conflicted. Yeah. I think next time what I'll do is I'll, I'll just do name cards and maybe in the corner you quickly draw a stick figure just to give everyone an idea of the silhouette of your character. So you know where I thought you were going with it. I thought that you were going to do something with that world map that we haven't really used in this system at all, where you have like the inner circle, the outer circle, and the third layer circle. Yes. I thought you were going to do something where we had parties go in different places of the world and you were going to use those as placeholders for this is where your character is in the world. I didn't think of that. That would have been interesting. Okay. So the drawings, we spent 15 minutes on it. It didn't go anywhere. It didn't help. Um, If you're playing theater of the mind, just leave it theater of the mind. Fair enough. Yep. The backstories. So I, this is my favorite part of the session by far. And we had a huge victory here that I didn't even put in the show notes. So make sure Mike, that I cover that before we leave this slide. So 
I asked the three of you to come up with what happened to you guys since the last adventure. So Nathan had a teleport. So at the end of the last adventure, he teleported back to town and left you guys on it for a, with a two-day journey ahead of you to get back to town. So when you guys showed back up, I had Mike, I had you and Chris come up with three things that Nathan had been doing or his character had been doing for the last two days. And I, I gave him veto power over one of them. And then I had Nathan come up with one thing for each of you that you'd been doing on your journey for the last two days. And I think this just worked out beautifully. What did you think? Did it get you back into the game, back into your character? Yeah, I absolutely agree. It it worked fantastically. Um, I, I really liked that it, it kind of gave us a little bit of agency over another player's character where they had that option to veto. I thought that was a really, really fun idea. Um, I was a little nervous that that might be something that, that could be improperly abused you know i think if if maybe we weren't as tight-knit as a party that could be something that'd be a little risky but uh i think it worked out really really well and it got us really quickly back into the game and gave us a little chance to to kind of play around and get inside each other's characters heads and you're right there's a huge trust element there so did it make it seem like time had passed i was really going for hey look it's been a, it's been two days it's been a two-day journey. I want it to feel like it's been a two-day journey. Did it? Did that achieve that? Absolutely. And, and you know, what it immediately made me think of was uh, back in our ETU campaign where we kind of abandoned, you know, what happened between semester to semester because we never had a good way to do it properly. I think if we had done this in ETU where we kind of went around the table, give me two, veto one for each character over the semesters, I think that would have been awesome. And I'm a little sad we didn't do that now. Well, that's all right. We'll do it going forward. I, I I do want to pick these characters back up and play Dungeon World, and we'll get into that. Um, so I, the third question I had on, on the show note was, do we want to do it again? And you're saying, yes, we do. Yeah, I, I think so. Awesome. So favorite part, by far, the favorite part of the session for me, and we hadn't even started the adventure yet. I hadn't even really let, laid the hook. So there's an issue right there is when your favorite part's the precursor. So the hook. The village of Dora celebrates. You've brought Ursula back down from the mountain. She's, you know, going to do her best not to cause an eternal winter and let them grow crops. So you all enjoy a night around a, bo- sorry, a night around the bonfire, and then, in the distance, screams. I didn't realize how tired this was and how frequently I've done screams in the distance. I've been nose blind to it until Nathan looked at me and said, in just in, in a rote as way as possible, he said, I walked toward the screams. And I was like, <laughs> oh. In that just, you know, they had that moment where you're like, oh, man. That, that heartbreak. I, I guess I do do this a lot. How tired of you, Mike, are screams in the distance? You know, it's funny. I didn't think about it until Nathan had said something, and then I kind of tried to to – change it up by by having Lenny, my pet mule, hide, you know, having my concern be on him rather than the screaming people. But uh yeah, thinking about it, that we do that a lot. But yeah. but I don't know, right, how how else do you do that instant mood breaking stuff, right? If if you're trying to shift from from revelry to danger, I, I don't know how else you really do that. 
Yeah, I, I don't know how I could have done it differently either. Maybe have one of you guys spot a skeleton right before it stabs someone and then the screaming starts. Uh, th- there's something there. I, I'm using the same stuff over and over. I'm using – if I hadn't done it so much, you, you, you're right. It'd be fine. But I've done it so much that I've fallen into a cliché, and I've got to correct that cliché. All right, moving on from the hook. The skeleton combat. So the scream started, and it turns out there are six skeletons running amok amongst the villagers. All right, during this chaos, or, sorry, during this encounter, I tried really hard to evoke a sense of chaos and uncertainty as the crowd, you know, kind of ran around you and ran past you and you weed your way through the crowd. And it was dark, it's pitch black, you know, it, it's nighttime, there's just fires giving you flickering illumination. And I wanted the skeletons to kind of appear in and out of the crowd and appear out of nowhere. Um, did I achieve that? Was this atmospheric? Did you feel that? Yeah, I think you, that that came off pretty well. I mean, you you had the um, the the sense that there was more danger that we hadn't spotted all the skeletons. So I, I think you did that as about as as well as you could, especially with the rogue in the party, right? Who had you know pretty high perception. Um, yeah, I think that worked out. Was more importantly, was the combat fun? Was it interesting? Compared to the last game, no. Um, which is funny because because there was less combat in the in the in the in the last game than there was in this game. It wasn't it wasn't not fun, right? I wasn't bored, but I don't know. I I, I don't know if I felt. Well, I don't want to say I don't felt we were challenged because because Chris went down twice in this game. So we were definitely challenged. Yeah. I don't know. I I think maybe the thing I like about world of dungeons then that I like everything so far is that that combat is simple enough that, that I don't feel that feeling of dread like I do. in, in some of the other systems we played, like, like where I sit there thinking during everyone else's turn of what I'm going to do on my turn, I wait for my turn and I roll some dice and I'm like, I swing my sword. I swing my sword. And, and that's kind of freeing for me. Because I haven't played a character like that in a long time where I don't have to try and be five steps ahead of somebody else. So you so like yeah. playing a fighter, basically, which is pretty much what you're playing. You're playing a sort of a fighter slash barbarian type character. Um, is that the character or the system? I, I think it may be the system, right? Because there's not much else I have in my bag of tricks other than swing sword. I don't have anything on my character I can use to, you know, redirect threat or mitigate fear or anything else like you'd normally see in like a fighter system where where you do something other than just swing a sword. And even in this system, right, I can't even, you know, be a tank. I can't be a meat shield because if Chris or Nathan fail their roles or even don't do a great role, they draw that risk. They draw that threat themselves and doing a low roll so there's not even a tanking mechanic in this game so i literally have nothing to do but sit there and swing a sword which i'm not saying is a negative thing i'm not saying is a negative thing i like it and it's freeing but as a system i think i maybe just found its fatal flaw well i think we found its fatal flaw last time which was the sparseness of the rules around magic but what i was gonna say mike oh poor mike poor poor michael when we amp this up into full-on dungeon world, yeah, you're, you're going to have four pages 
or two pages front and back of different moves you can do. Wow. Okay. So it's going to ramp up from, hey, roll roll 2d6 and do whatever the hell you want. It's going to ramp up into, here are all the moves you can do in a fair amount of detail. And I think it could be really good because I think it'll be pretty obvious. I think you'll be doing hack and slash most of the time. Yeah. But there is an ability that your fighter will have where when when a fellow character draws a consequence and that consequence is an enemy attack, you can um, interpose yourself between that attack and the enemy Hmm. or your friend. So there are tanking mechanics coming up. So it is about to get a lot harder, and you're about to go back to having tons and tons of stuff to choose from. All right, so the skeleton combat, it was atmospheric. I achieved that. It wasn't fun. It's not that you didn't feel danger because, as you said, Chris went down, but there was something indefinable that made this combat a little bit boring, and I'll, I'll take that because it was. Um, it didn't feel as visceral. It, it didn't feel nearly as, as visceral. So after the fight, Keltus' backstory. So the skeletons did kill some villagers, and as we said last time, when a villager's dead, that's when Keltus is coming around. So you guys talked to Ursula, and you, you got some of Keltus' backstory out of her. By the way, I totally stole Keltus' backstory from the Dunwich Horror. Keltus was basically Wilbur Waitley from the Dunwich Horror. No idea on that reference. That's okay. So, and I try, I do try to steal from things that you guys don't consume so that, so that you don't know that. It makes me seem smarter. But in this case... Did you care about Keltus's backstory at all? I'm going to go ahead and say Keltus's backstory confused me a lot, right? So my character is a very low intelligence, very low wisdom player, right? So there was part of me that was playing my character, but there was part of me that was enabled in playing my character because I was genuinely confused about what this person was and how he operated. I, I didn't get that he was just a normal guy growing up. And then all of a sudden he had these blood red death coins that whenever in town someone died, he just strolled up and was like, here's your death coin. Have fun at the death market. I didn't get that at all. And I really had trouble connecting the dots on that so i just kind of reverted back into my own character and was like all right point me in the smashing direction and that death coin thing i stole from a youtuber that is very famous in the rpg community matt colville talks about the 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 blood the blood gold um he had uh one of the bad guys from fourth edition from the keep on the shadow fell i forget his name calorel he uses calorel of vile to give out the blood coins. I wanted to use Wilbur Waitley from the Dunwich Horror. Um, so maybe the fact that you hit on the blood coins and my Wilbur Waitley backstory, maybe the fact that I was combining two different backstories that were both pretty strong created some confusion in, in what Keltus was all about. Um, even if it didn't create confusion, I could just tell Nathan and Chris just weren't feeling it. They, they weren't interested at all. It was sort of, okay, okay, let's get him here so we can kill him. Yeah, I, I think there might have been a little bit of a chomping at the lead at that too, right? There there wasn't any thread to untie. There was, there was no external threat that said, you know, if we go straight to murder, 
than consequence for murder, right? It was it was basically a consequence-free death of the bad guy. So there weren't enough politics is what you're saying. Maybe, I don't know. I I'm a little uh I'm a little hesitant to go that far to say, well, if we had set up this the string of consequences that if we he killed him without solving for X, Y, and Z, then it would make game go even longer. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. I don't, I don't know if we just felt engaged with him as a villain, right? It hmm. was, it was a to B to C bad guy, bad guy, die, C good day. I think the camera lingered a little too long in the village of Dora. I think if I'd moved you guys on to a totally different village and you had a totally different adventure with a totally different plot hook, it may have been more fun. But I think mm. the shine was off Dora. I could see that. So the Celtus combat. Spoilers to my game that no one online will ever play. You guys fought a dragon in human form. Yep. Was the combat hard? Nope. <laughs> but on the other hand, Chris went down. He he did, but twice, twice he, he went down with the skeletons, and he went down with Celtus. So so it's funny when I when I think about this system, right? Chris did nothing wrong. He didn't make any bad tactical moves. He didn't you know make any silly decisions or or do something boastful and crazy that put him in an awkward situation. He just simply made a bad roll. And then on his bad roll, you made a good roll. And twice that took him down in one shot. It wasn't he ticked down hit points, he ticked down hit points, he ticked down hit points. It was just that he's a squishy DPSer. He only had one armor he could sink and four hit points. And you always hit him for either four or five hit points after his armor. So I... I don't know how I feel about that in this system, and I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, I struggle with it, too. I'm, I'm looking forward to our next one shot, which will be in Pocket Fantasy, which, well, you know what? Let's go ahead and, and, and talk about the system. Actually, let's cover the magic item first, then we'll cover the system. So magic item, after the Celtus combat, hey, that Ring of Shadows that Chris's character found was pretty sweet, right? It's super sweet. <laughs> so I do really like um, I took it from Dungeon World I do like the magic items that I've seen written up in Dungeon World where you know everyone's different but some of the items that are meant to be sort of cursed items they let you have an effect um, assuming you roll your 2d6 and you get at least a 7 you get to have the effect which in this case you get to become invisible um but you draw some consequences, and you'd have to take two consequences on a 7 to 9 or just one consequence on a 10+. Plus. And the consequences are pretty flavorful and interesting. I really liked that, and I love... So the consequence Chris drew is that, yes, you get to be invisible, but as you move around, all the light sources go, go out. And I don't think he understood that this negated his invisibility because now he can't see either. I don't think I got that either. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I totally didn't think about that because I jumped right on the train with Chris and I was like, well, if I'm a rogue, how is that a negative consequence? Because now I'm always in darkness and that gives me advantage over my enemies unless 
he can't see those enemies now. Yeah, now everyone's yeah. invisible. It's, it's like being invisible in a dark room. It doesn't matter. So the magic item was fun. I like the flavor. I like the mechanics of the magic items. That's neat. Um, in fact, uh, we sort of used magic again just to MacGuffin the end of the adventure. Um, you guys, after talking to Ursula a little bit more after killing Keltus, Keltus shared, or sorry, Ursula shared, Keltus' cult, lived in this abandoned mine shaft on the outside of town. And Nathan piped up and he says, wait a minute. My wizard has an earth elemental. Can I just, you know, send him to collapse the mines? And I completely allowed that. Mike, was that too permissive? Absolutely not. I actually love that you let us do that because, you know, the cult leader is dead. The cult is going to disband unless there's something in place for, you know, the sub leader to now move up in place. But in a one shot, I'm guessing that wasn't there. So it literally would have just been going through this mine, killing cult worshippers one by one. And, and I think that was the perfect way to address that. And it just let the adventure end, which I could tell the adventure needed to end. All right. Let's talk about the real meat of this thing, Mike. Let, let's, I, I'm going to get fully real. The system. There's just not enough damn rules. There's yeah. not enough mechanics. Yeah, I'll agree with that. It's a roll, roll 2d6. Sometimes with your stat, there are some skills laid out. There are some special abilities. The skills are not defined. The special abilities are a bit defined. But the magic is hardly defined at all. The rituals are, are not defined. Um, they're just There's not enough mechanics here. The primary way to get XP is through gold and silver, which makes the equipment purchases and the equipment table completely meaningless after the first adventure when you get a lot of gold and silver because that's how you get xp then all the prices on that equipment table are utterly meaningless you have so much gold that it's no problem to buy whatever you want after just let's say i want let's say i want you to level up every five sessions okay so every five sessions i give you a fifth of the gold that you need to get to the next level even a fifth of the gold that you need to get to the next level is a tremendous amount of gold when you look at the equipment on that list. There's just not enough meat to the system. It, it, you can really tell it's meant for one-shots, and even then, it's meant for one-shots played with no wizard. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think it was funny that in in one of the you know rounds we fought with Keltus where he actually got to do something against us, he had a fire attack. And you had one of my consequences for not succeeding against that to, to, you know, have my shield destroyed. And at first I was like, oh, no, my shield's destroyed. That's like a whole armor point that I'm going to lose off absorbing additional attacks. And I looked at the equipment sheet and it's like, oh, yeah, new shield's 10 silver with my 34 gold that I have at the beginning of this adventure. Yeah, it, it just it, it was a good try, but it just wasn't consequential enough. Right. It, yeah, it, it, I think you're spot on in that the overall system is just too light, but I'm at conflict with that, right? Because I think the lightness of the system is partially what's really allowing me to engage with my character in a role play style. And, and I hope I don't struggle with that when we go to something a little more heavier in Dungeon World. The lightness of the system becomes no problem at all if you do two things. One address the wizard. Either get rid of it 
or completely change it to where you have one damaging cantrip and summoning a monster doesn't take an hour, but it's also not super OP. Yeah. Um, so number one, address the wizard. Number two, a, just a different way to get experience. You know, just tell me, give me guidelines for how many experience to give per adventure. Just completely do away with experience points and and do a leveling system that's much more milestone driven and let the gold be sparse. Let, let you barely get any gold from adventure to adventure so that spending 10 silver on a shield over and over and over again is a burden. Um, those two changes, changing experience and leveling and changing the wizard would make the system completely viable. The one thing I will also say, and I think you maybe kind of already hit on this at once, if I were playing or trying to run a one-shot at a con, I would absolutely want to do it in World of Dungeons. I'm not saying this seems valueless. I think it has a tremendous amount of value. I would certainly house rule the wizard. Yeah. And I would do milestone leveling, and gold would be rare and hard to get. And then, boom, you've got World of Dungeon, and, and it works. At least for our table, it would work much better. So now you just got to give it a new clever name, like Dungeon World of World of Dungeons. <laughs> um, World of Dragons. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right, conclusions. What, what did we learn? I don't know if we actually learned anything new this game or this this episode, right? I, I think we basically learned what we learned about the, the Dungeon World system and, you know, what we just said of how it's too light. It needs some refinement and some changes for it to be a a campaign-centric system. I think that's our biggest takeaway this episode. Yeah, so maybe when you're evaluating a new system, take a hard look at those characters that push the system to its very edge. And in a lot of cases, and for a lot of systems, that's going to be the wizard. Take a hard look at the wizard and, and see if it works, see if it's balanced and and disallow it maybe for early games and change it if uh if you're mechanically inclined to where you can figure out how the math will play out that's a fair lesson another lesson for me is don't get complacent we had a great world of dungeon session when we played frozen it was super fun it was awesome we laughed we also took it seriously there was drama there were one-liners um we had a great time and this one we had two big moments. Oh, I forgot to cover it before. I'll cover it now. In this one, we had two great moments. The first was when you told each other's stories between sessions. Great moment. And then that led to later on, because Mike, you already alluded to the mule. The mule was the story point that Nathan gave you. Yep. That, that during the two-day journey, you befriend and train one of the pack mules. So... That led to some actual player-to-player role-play, which I've expressed episodes ago is a huge weak point of mine. Next thing I know, I've got Nathan, the intelligent wizard, um, or playing Aram, the intelligent wizard, role-playing with Bragan, with your character, the the, the dummy fighter, um, about what's going on and what to pay attention to and what not to pay and in that moment where Nathan started role-playing with you and you started talking back and you guys had kind of a back and forth, I was like, player-to-player oh, player role-play. It's happening! It's happening! <laughs> so we had some great moments in this session. We had some great moments last session. 
but I overall got complacent and I trusted the formula just to work. And then it didn't because I hadn't put enough thought into making Celtus interesting to you versus just reading his backstory to you basically and expecting you to become interested. So I, I needed to do some work there. All right. World of Dungeons, um, great little system, needs some work. Um, not really our thing, we, as we've discovered. We're going to move on to Pocket Fantasy, and we will come back to full-on Dungeon World. So looking forward to all that. This is uh, RPG Lessons Learned. Thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them Lessons Learned, and we're sharing ours with you.